just a real quick review of what we've been looking at. We've been talking about the falling away. Let me, let me readjust this a little bit. We've been uh, talking about the, the great falling away here that we've got here, falling away and all the things that happen. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, make this a little stronger here so that we can see the pertinent parts. And we talked about how that uh, over the years from the beginning of the early church, that was the establishment in the, uh, in the uh, majority group of the following of the Trinity. Then the pouring and sprinkling take place of uh, immersion and celibacy, which meant priest, the, the ministry could not marry, but had to be single. Uh, the transubstantiation, which was the belief that uh, communion was the turning the blood, the blood turning the wine to the blood of Jesus and the bread into the body of Christ. Uh, we talked about the confession in which they would confess their sins to the priest, and the priest uh, would have them do penance. And then their sins were forgiven in that fashion. No true repentance. It took the place of repentance. And then, of course, mass <clears throat> became the official uh, name for communion in the sense that mass was observed in every service and so forth. Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, is a combination of Mary and idolatry together, Mariolatry. Purgatory, they established a belief that there was a place between heaven and hell or heaven and earth where you went to first and then you were there and you suffered and then from there you went to heaven and uh, people could pray you out, relatives could pray you out in time and so forth if you were, uh, you know, if they would do things for the church or do things to for humanity then <clears throat> they could get you advanced on to heaven quicker. And then finally, just justification by works, <clears throat> which meant that we are saved by the works that we do, not by faith. And then indulgences or trinkets and objects that they would sell. And by doing that, they would increase the amount of points you would get to get out of purgatory. It's sort of a, almost a pagan thing to us today as we look at it. And then finally, <clears throat> they established the infallibility of the Pope. And along about in this time, we got the dark ages here, along about in this time, there were... Uh, men who were coming into power, the Pope's position had become the most powerful position in all of Europe because the Catholic Church in general uh, controlled Europe. Now, where was the real church in all of this? It did exist. There were the apostolic Jesus' name, uh, people baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. They were there, but they, you don't read about them in the normal, regular history. They're here, they're, you find them in the in the uh, smaller history comment, comments and commentaries and so forth, but they were there all the time because the Bible says in one place, upon this rock, Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it will not totally overcome it. They were always in existence, but uh, the majority of what was called Christianity, uh, and they called themselves the Catholic Church, which meant universal church, uh, they began to go into all these and finally went into the dark ages in which uh, it was very pathetic, very sinful, 
the Vatican had become very exceedingly sinful. I talked about one pope uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was Alexander the Sixth, who was pope for about ten years. And Alexander the Sixth even had a brothel in the, in the Vatican. He ran a you know a brothel there, and uh, he'd have his friends come in. It all had these women and. It was really uh, pathetic, and then he'd give out, of course, offices and positions to his friends, to his family, to his children. He, had, he wasn't supposed to have children because he was supposed to be celibate, but he had a whole bunch of kids, and uh, it, it was really pathetic. And so this rocked along into the Dark Ages. And then we talked about, this is another chart that I'm going to put up here that uh, talks about us coming out of the Dark Ages, this is a, actually a different chart, but it's, the emphasis is on the restoration here or <clears throat> the, uh, the Reformation, as it's called when it comes to Christianity, uh, the Reformation period of time in which the Lord began to send men to raise up the church or bring it out of the Dark Ages. And uh, here is the falling away area. Here's the Dark Ages over here where my pen is. Not focusing it there right now and then Luther was the first one Martin Luther was the first one who came up with this concept that we're justified by faith not by works justification by faith and what Luther eventually did was to establish a belief that we are saved by we're justified by faith alone alone uh, he attacked the, he attacked the word alone on there meaning that nothing else matters, nothing else is included, nothing else involves being justified in the sight of God. It is strictly by faith itself. And so he began to preach this, present this. It took his entire life. Uh, I was just reading a couple of days ago about his death, how he died and when he died and so forth. He was 63 years old and uh, died in Germany. And uh, and he, uh, he said his prayers and so forth. He, but he, he was one man who stood against the Pope in all the world. A hundred years before him, there was a guy by the name of John Huss. John Huss that lived in Prague, what's called the city of Prague today. It's out of the, uh, the uh, country there. And uh, John Huss uh, stood against the Pope, but he was burned at the stake. And they took him, burned him to the stake. And when they were going to burn him to the stake, he said to them, the word hus uh, in, in, in Eastern Europe is pronounced hus. We pronounce it hus in, in the English. Uh, it means goose. It's pronounced hus. It means goose. And so he said, you will burn this goose, but there comes one after me. You will not be able to stop. And many of them believed that he was prophesying about the coming of Luther. When Luther would come, they would not be able to stop him. When Luther began to preach the gospel, they tried, they being the Pope, cardinals, uh, the, the, uh, all of the leaders of the Catholic Church tried every way they could to stop him, but he continued to preach the gospel, spread all through Germany, all Germany stood behind him. Uh, there, were, there were men that were kings or knights uh, who had big castles in the forest and they would take him away and hide him. Uh, for days, and he was always either translating the Bible into German or writing pamphlets or booklets during those times. And uh, so Luther was a very active person. He eventually married. I don't think he had any children, but he eventually married a, a woman who had been a nun. 
had come out of the Catholic Church like himself. They, they, they were married, and he went on with a married life because he said that's not scriptural, and he was right. We've talked about that already. I am pointing out to you here that Luther and all of these things uh, presented to the world justification by faith, but the tacking on of the part about uh, alone uh, seems to imply that there is nothing else that's ever involved in our salvation. Let me move on just a minute, and I'll come back to Luther in a moment, but following shortly behind, let me just say one thing too. In, uh, in 1517, this is where Luther really drew the line in the sand. Uh, he, he, in Wittenberg, Germany, he went to that big church, Wittenberg Church, and he nailed on the, uh, on the door the 95 Theses, Martin's, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, what he believed and the error of the church at that time. And of course, I've mentioned this before, but I have a copy here in English of the 95 Thesis. This was passed along to me by someone in our church. I don't remember who it was. God bless you for it. I value it. But anyhow, it talks about what Luther, uh, what he opposed and how he opposed it and so forth. And it was done on October the 31st, 1517. That was All Saints Day. That was All Saints Day that became to be known as Halloween, as you well know, uh, October 31st. Because it, when Luther nailed all those 95 pieces on the door, all the demons of Hades was loosed. <laughs> and, and they came against what the Catholics felt like was against them, against the church. And so to this day, we still celebrate Halloween and all the demons and the devils and so forth like that. And it all comes back when Luther nailed those 95 pieces on the door of the church of Wittenberg. I want to move on here very quickly, just as a point of reference, I spoke on those things. But the second one here was the Presbyterian Church, and uh, it was established uh, probably maybe 15, 16 years later, 14 years later by John Calvin. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he introduced to the, uh, to the movement of uh, the Reformation fathers and leaders, excuse me for a moment, he introduced to them uh, that communion was a memorial, that it was not, uh, I'm sorry, you get the full load of that, <laughs> but uh, he, is, he introduced to them as a memorial and it was not transubstantiation, it, we only do it in remembrance and he used that scripture of course found in uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11 that we do it in remembrance of the Lord and so forth. And so he introduced that in that fashion. Uh, he also introduced the concept that no statues, idols of saints, angels, or anything should be in the church. So the Presbyterian said no statues. Luther says, eh, nothing wrong with the statue, we'll keep them. The Catholics had them, the Lutherans kept them, but the Presbyterian says no statues. Uh, the Lutheran says transubstantiation, the Catholics had it, we, we maintain it, uh, but uh, the Presbyterian says, no, we will not. And so there were some things that they brought the Reformation along a little further. Uh, one thing that John Calvin introduced that has been controversial in all Christianity ever since, he was a very intelligent man, he was a lawyer, and then he became a preacher and eventually pastored a church in Geneva, Switzerland. He was French, from France, educated there. 
and uh, he pastored this church in Geneva, Switzerland, when the whole city was all Christians and they all attended the same church, the church that he pastored. He's a very powerful person, and uh, he has wrote, he has written a commentary uh, that uh, is well known, Calvin, and, and presents what's called the doctrine or the belief of Calvinism. Now, let me explain to you what Calvinism is, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. But Calvinism is the belief that once you, that you're born to be saved or lost, it is the belief of predestination. And John Calvin, after reading the scriptures, believed that we are born to be saved or we're born to be lost. If you're born to be saved, you will be saved, and there's no way you will not be saved. It's called the foreknowledge of God as well. Uh, he, uh, he believed that if you're born not to be saved, you never will be saved. And so it was a, sort of a dividing thing with people. Many Christians says we can't do that. Martin Luther says I, I can't go along with that, Calvin. That's 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 not that doesn't coincide with other scriptures and so forth. And so uh, Calvin stood that that came, became known as Calvinism. Uh, that was later adopted by the Baptist Church. Uh, only they softened it a little bit. Instead of saying you're born to be saved or lost, they say once saved, always saved. Eternal security. Once you get saved, then you're always saved. You can't be lost and so forth. If you are lost, then it's because you never were saved. <laughs> and it sort of goes around and around in that fashion. Let me move on very quickly here. I mentioned these before. The Baptists came along. Excuse me again. <coughs> the Baptists came along, and they came from what was called the Anabaptists. And John Smith is the one that introduced them to Holland and America. And they, he introduced immersion. In other words, baptism should be done down in the water. And uh, this began to take off big time, and the Baptists became a very powerful organization both in Europe and eventually in America because America was a young nation uh, at this time beginning to develop. This 1609, they began to develop after that. And then, of course, the Methodists, uh, John Wesley, and we mentioned George Whitfield as well, uh, they introduced holiness. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And they said that Christianity must embrace holiness. Can I just say something here to us today? You know, we're called, we're, we're noted to, for being the holiness movement, you know, the Pentecostals, you know that. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, I, I like your religion, I like to feel God, but I don't like having to have, you know, standards of holiness that we live by. And that's decency, how you dress, how you look, how you act, what you do, what you don't do, where you go, where you don't go, you know, all those things that we do. Let me just tell you something. If you read the lives of these men, <laughs> they, their standard of holiness was so high that you and I would look like we were just outright sinners compared to the way, the way they lived. So don't ever think that they did not believe and, and live what they, what they preached, and they really did. And uh, they believe that we should live a good, clean, holy life. Praise the Lord. There are some places we just don't go, folks. You know, not because somebody's holding a gun to our head, just because we know that God is displeased with that. There's some things we don't do, you know. Uh, there is some things we just, some clothes we don't wear. Let me be honest with you. There's some ways we just don't dress a certain way because it's not pleasing to God and it's, of the world and not of God's people and so forth. And of course, we refer to that as standards of holiness and so forth. God bless our people. Our women, for instance, they don't cut their hair. Our women don't cut their hair because the Bible says that a woman's hair is a glory, that her hair should not be cut or sheared. This is the 11th chapter of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, if you want to read it sometime. 
anyhow, it's uh, the other things that teach us about it and, and makeup and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I remember my wife, when, we, when I was dating her, she worked at a bank. And uh, there was a woman in there that just hated her, hated her. And uh, she didn't like my wife at all. And my wife was a very beautiful young lady and wore no makeup because she was Pentecostal. Everything. And that woman finally one day got mad at her and railed on her and said, you know what's wrong with you? You think you're so pretty that you don't need no makeup. You get under my skin. You, you know, and she just railed on you know. And my wife just smiled and said, God bless you, and went on her way. And the woman had made it even the worse. I've seen us travel sometimes. We come off of a road trip, you know, been traveling for, for hours. We stopped for dinner someplace. She'd go in the women's room, wash her face. <laughs> just take, wash her face and dry it off, you know, and come out. How many women can just wash their face without washing all kinds of stuff, you know, off? You know, you know what I'm talking about? And so she just washed her face. Yeah, well, this is all holiness. This is involved in holiness. And uh, she said that women would look at her real strange. You know, wow, you, you can wash your face and not look like a, you know, a streaking face or something like that. Whatever, I don't know. That's the woman, the women's world. But nevertheless, holiness, they brought forth. Christians, the Christian movement uh, brought forth the concept uh, that uh, baptism is for the remission of sins. That baptism is not just an act, but it's for remission of sins. You have to be baptized to have your sins taken away, your sins remitted. Out of the Christian church came what's called the Church of Christ, led by a man by the name of, uh, by, by a man by the name of John Campbell, and uh, Alexander Campbell, rather. And uh, Alexander Campbell uh, began to have a group. He split off from that. And his concept was that only what's in the word is what we believe, and we do not have the spirit today, we only have the word. So he began to develop a church without the spirit. They denied the spirit. To this day, the Church of Christ movement, the Church of Christ in general, they do not believe in the Holy Ghost. They do not believe in miracles. They do not believe in the power of God. They're strong believers in the word. However, you and I know that by the spirit, we understand the word. You've got to have the spirit to understand the word. Are you still with me? You've got to have the spirit to understand the word. And so in that old tabernacle, they had both the candlesticks and they had the showbread. The bread represented the word of God. And the candlesticks with the light on it, the candles burning, represented the spirit of God and the light of God. Praise the Lord. And so here along the way, little by little, this truth began to develop. And then finally around 1900, the Holy Ghost began to be poured out. And then in 1914, men began to get the revelation uh, on Jesus' name, baptism, and Jesus was Almighty God, God in Christ, and so forth. Now, I want to go back down to Luther for a moment here. I'm going to go back down to the bottom part of this. And I want to talk to you a little bit about Luther because Luther had this concept that we are saved by faith only or justified by faith alone, and that nothing else matters, and so forth. Let me uh, talk to you for a moment here about something that I think has to be understood. Uh, faith has a, an action factor to it. Faith is not just something in the head. It's not just something we believe or that we perceive or we grasp with our minds. 
but it is a thing that involves all of our parts. That's why the Lord said in one place to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and, and body, and, and, and strength, it says, strength, which means body. And so all of those parts are involved in us living for God, serving the Lord, walking with the Lord. And uh, whenever you say that somebody has faith, you have to understand that that faith is put into action. Faith is, does not just stand alone. James talks about this in the second chapter of the book of James extensively, that, that faith alone, alone cannot stand, he means in the head, but faith has to have, praise the Lord, the action part involved. Now I'm going to show you here what I mean by that. For instance, look here in Acts chapter 8, 12. Let me just show you something. I'm going to refer to a couple of scriptures here. Look in Acts chapter uh, 8 and 12. <clears throat> and uh, this is whenever Philip had gone to Samaria and preached the gospel unto them. And, uh, and the Bible says that miracles were performed and, and so forth. And then it says in verse 12, I'll read this. Excuse me. <coughs> but when they believed, look at that. And, and I have in my Bible that underlined. When they believed, that is the Samaritan people. When they believed, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. So their believing involved them being baptized to complete their believing. Okay, so when they believed, they were baptized. It was not enough just to believe, but they said, oh, if we're going to be saved, then we need to be baptized as well. That's why that scripture says in one place, baptism doth now save us. Praise the Lord. That's why Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Sins are remitted in baptism. And so baptism is very essential. When these people believed, they were baptized. In conjunction with that verse of Scripture, look over in the book of Acts chapter 19. This is one very familiar to all of us. I'm going to read 19 verses 1 down through 5. And it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. He said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Notice here that he was, he felt that they should have had the Holy Ghost if you believed. Do you understand what I'm saying here? These are things that go with believing. Believing is not just here and it doesn't stop there, but it involves everything. So he said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said unto him, we have not so much heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. We don't know anything about the Holy Ghost. And then Paul, then, then Paul sort of backs up here a little bit and, and to see where everything is. He says, and he said unto them, under what then were you baptized? And they said, under John's baptism. Well, John was John the Baptist that was a forerunner of Jesus in, in Palestine. Verse 4, then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. Okay. And they could have said right there, oh, okay, so we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fine. Pat everybody, pat everybody on the back, and they're saved, right? No, here's what happened. Verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because that's the completion or that's the 
action factor involved in their faith or in their believing the Lord. I'm just pointing this out to show you here, even two scriptures here to do with salvation and baptism, that baptism is very essential. Praise the Lord. So when somebody says all you have to do is just believe, you are, you are, you're saved, it's more than that. The believing requires actions on our part. Let me, give you a, let me give you some real examples. I want you to look at Hebrews for a minute, chapter 11. Go to Hebrews 11. This is, uh, this is the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. And if you don't remember anything else that I tell you here this morning, don't forget what I'm going to tell you now. But here in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it's all about faith from the beginning to the end, about the faith of the people who lived in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to pick up here, like in the fourth verse. I'm doing this to save time because I don't want to bore you here with a lot of reading. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Faith, by faith, he offered a sacrifice. Notice here that the faith wasn't just here and it stopped. But faith motivated him to take action and to offer a sacrifice, you know, unto the Lord. You understand what I'm saying here? So by faith, he offered the sacrifice. The faith brought about the action. Uh, down in, uh, let's, let's go to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. I mean, he got out there and worked. His physical actions was based on the faith that he had. He didn't say, okay, so there's going to be a flood one day. Okay, I believe that. I believe it. I believe it. You know, it's like me standing here saying, you know, uh, the building's on fire. Everybody awake now? It's not. <laughs> the building's not on fire. Okay, but what if I were standing here and everybody's wide awake and I say, the building's on fire. But if you want to be saved, go out this exit door, this exit door, and the two back there, or the two back there. These four exits, you can go out and be saved. Now, you can say, oh, I believe that. But if you sit where you are, do you, do you really believe it? You know what I'm saying? But when you act upon it, you say, I believe that. You know? If I were to say the building's on fire, you go out those exits, I think every one of us here would get up and go out those doors, you know, if we really believed the building was on fire, right? Wouldn't you? Everybody that would get up and walk out, if you thought the building really was on fire, you'd be, okay. So what I'm trying to point out to you, that's the action involved in our believing. Believing, of course, is faith. Now I'm going to move on a little quicker here. This, <clears throat> this eighth verse here in 11.8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should actually receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went. Obeyed and he went. If he had stayed in the city of Ur, over in Babylon area, Chaldeans, uh, Abraham would not have received the blessings and the goodness and the promises of God, but his faith required an action that he had to go with it. By faith, verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. He moved up and down that country, lived all of his life over there, and so forth. These are all just examples of how faith brings about actions on our part. So when the preacher says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we believe that? If I believe that being baptized will save me, then I will be baptized. Baptism is not a work. I say that because there are people who believe that that is the case. 
Well, they said, oh, yeah, you can get baptized. It's all right. As long as you believe, that's the main thing. If you get baptized in the outward manifestation of an inward work, it's already happened, but go ahead and do it as a, as a show that you believe in, you know, the scriptures and baptism and so forth. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are baptized for the remission of sins. So baptism is essential. It's a physical act that God requires of us, and where faith is involved, it involves our actions. Praise the Lord. Amen. Everything about it. The Bible says, the just shall live by faith. If you really believe the word of God, you believe Jesus Christ, you will, go, you will walk with him. You will serve him. Amen. You will go to church. You know, you'll do it because you want to. You will, you'll, you will worship him because that's the actions involved in us living by faith. Praise God. Uh, here's another one in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, this is eleven seventeen of Hebrews still. <clears throat> by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. In other words, by his faith, he offered Isaac. Even though the Lord rejected it at the last minute and Isaac did not die and so forth, we know that. But he offered Isaac, put him on the altar, was ready to take his life because the Lord had required that of him. It goes on down, just saving time, down verse 23, for instance. By faith, Moses, when he was hid three months, his parents hid him. By faith, they hid him. They took action. They didn't say, oh, we're just going to believe God, he'll be all right. They said, no, we're going to do something. That's why the faith involves us. So when you come to the Lord and you say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, first thing you want to say is, I've got to repent of my sins, ask God to forgive me, i got to ask, because repentance is an act of faith. It's part of the action factor involved in faith. And where's the water? <laughs> like, the, like the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, here's water, what doth hinder us? Well, what was he, why did he say that? Because Philip had been talking to him and said, you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. So finally he said, okay, I believe. Here is water, what doth hinder us? So they went down to the water and Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm just pointing out to you folks that these are not just, it's not just faith in the head alone. But it is actions involved that, are, that goes with faith. And baptism is part of it. Repentance is part of it. Living for God as afterwards is all part of it and so forth. It goes on to say here, Speaking of Moses, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called. He refused. He took an action, took a stand. Verse 25, choosing. In other words, that was an action on his part, choosing, rather to suffer the affliction of the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It goes on to say, esteeming the reproach of Christ and all, and so forth. And um, finally, I'll, I'll just move very quickly to the last one here. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Those Hebrews had walked and marched for 40 years in the wilderness. And here they were at the walls of Jericho, and they're about to enter into Canaan's land. And Lord, what do we do here? And the Lord says, you're going to march some more. <laughs> you know, you march 40 years. You're going to do a little bit more. I want you to go around one time every, march around the walls one time every day for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to go around seven times. And when you get all through, I want you to blow your trumpets. Well, what, what's going to happen? The walls are going to fall. Okay, I believe that. I believe it. But they still had to march, didn't they? They still had to walk, you know. Praise the Lord. God can do anything. God can heal. God can change things. He still wants us to pray. 
He still wants us to be a praying people. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, I, I know what you have need of, and therefore you don't have to do anything. You just go and sit down in the shade tree someplace, and, and I'll take care of everything. No, the Lord wants us to be a praying people. He wants us to draw nigh unto him. He wants us to read his Bible because this thing about living by faith involves us in our actions. Praise the Lord. And so it was with salvation, so it is also in everyday life as we walk with God and we serve the Lord. Praise God. Now, uh, I'm going to move a little bit here into John Calvin's doctrine that he has. John Calvin. And I respect all these men so very highly. I've read their autobiographies or biographies. Some of them have biographies, some autobiographies. Autobiography meaning they wrote it themselves. But I've read their books. They were men of prayer, every one of them. They were men of prayer. They sought the Lord. But it took their lifetime just to establish one truth. So with Martin Luther, I respect him because it took his life, entire life, to establish one thing. We're not saved by works or indulgences or trinkets or buying stuff. We're not saved by those works. We are saved by the faith of, of the Lord. But as you and I have just talked about, faith involves our actions in obeying the scriptures and doing what the Lord has said to do. Praise the Lord. Uh, there's a scripture where the Bible speaks about Paul. When Paul's con- when he got saved, he said, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And he said, what would, thou, what would you have me to do? Well, right away, he knew the Lord was Jesus. And he knew that. And so when he went in, there'd be a man to tell you what to do there. So Ananias was waiting for him in Damascus. When he got to Damascus, Ananias, praise the Lord, laid hands on him and prayed for him. He received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And he also had his eyes opened again. And he was baptized. And he said, arise, be baptized, Paul, washing away your sins, what he told Paul. And so I'm just telling you here that Paul was baptized whenever he believed and he knew that was Jesus, I'm being baptized in his name. Uh, he also, praise the Lord, uh, was, uh, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Somebody says to me, Brother Myers, it doesn't say in the ninth chapter there that Paul spoke in tongues. No, but if you look over in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, 14, 18, first reading. Paul said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than y'all. <laughs> Amen. He was a tongue talker, believe me. Amen. He said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than y'all. Don't talk about tongues to me. I know what tongues is. So apparently, and it's obvious that whenever he, was, he received the Holy Ghost, he spoke in other tongues, even though it's not recorded in the ninth chapter of Acts. It is recorded over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18. Amen. Let me move on here. I want to talk to you about John Calvin. Uh, as, he, as I said, and the great man that he, he was. But John Calvin introduced the doctrine of, of, uh, of um, predestination. It's called Calvinism today. Uh, later, uh, one of the church founder, or church reformation leaders, I should say, uh, came along by the name of Armenia. In Armenia, he began to proclaim that we are free agents. The Lord has given us the ability to make decisions of our own. Uh, the Congregationalists followed that. The, the Methodists followed that. Uh, all of, just about all the denominations, except the Baptists, uh, they, they modified the Presbyterians' view of it somewhat and just said, once saved, always saved. But uh, they don't go to the part about once lost, always lost either. They don't say that part of it. 
Let me talk to you about Calvin here because he talked about this uh, predestination factor here. Look in Ephesians. Let me show you here what it says. Give me 10 minutes and I'll be wrapping this up. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, uh, look, with, look in the fourth verse. According as he hath chosen us in him. Now look at this closely. You don't want to lose what I'm going to show you here. You don't want to lose this. He says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay? So what he is saying, what, what Paul is writing here is that According as he had, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Everybody see that? Yeah. All right. And, and, and Calvin looked at that and said, that's not predestination. I don't know what is. Look at verse 5. Having predestined us unto the adoption. Having predestined us. So we're predestined. Okay. Over in verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things. Now, if we were to go to the book of Romans and look at in chapter 8 and verse 28, uh, he speaks about this predestination as well. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But he talks about this predestination that God has predestined us, or he calls it the foreknowledge of God. You say, Brother Myers, are we predestined? Yes, but not as individuals. That's the difference. You and I as an individual is not predestined. We were not born to be and predestined to be saved or to be lost. And that it, there is not a thing where you and I then are predestined, praise the Lord, but we as a church are predestined. And when Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, he was saying to the people, these Gentiles, church, you as a church were predestined. The Gentiles were predestined to come along. Because the Jews, some of the Jews were saying, you got to become like the Jews. You're a tack-on. You're an add-on. You know, you're an afterthought of God. And Paul was saying, no, no, you're not. From the very beginning, the Lord already had you in mind that one day you would be part of the body of Christ. Not as individuals, but as a church, as a Gentile people. And so if you look at these verses here... Uh, for instance, if you look at, uh, I start in verse 4, if you look at verse 3, it says, Blessed be God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Put a ring around the word us. All down through here you see the plural pronoun. He said, according as he hath chosen us, in verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame. Verse 5, having predestined us unto the adoption. That verse 6, to the praise and the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us acceptable in the beloved. Verse 7, in whom we, everything is a plural uh, pronoun. Do you, are you getting that? It's about us collectively as a church group. Praise the Lord. The Bible talks about in one place about our names are written down in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Our names are not written down from the foundation of the world. It's written down in the book of life that's from, from the foundation of the world. Look at that verse again sometime. I don't, 
have it with me here right now. But the book of life was from the foundation of the world, not my name written down. Everybody stay with me? But I'm just trying to show you here that when Calvin came along, he, he said this is individuals. That's the only way he could, he could understand it. And the same thing if you were to go to the book of Romans. I went to Romans a while ago. Romans talks about these things, and he talks about them. Look at verse 28. <coughs> Excuse me. And we know that all things work together for good toward them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's the church. That's not individuals. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, notice the word many brethren, moreover whom he did predestinate them, not him, but them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified. And notice here again, all the way down, it's a plural pronoun that's being mentioned here. Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, for you know, us all. How shall we not put him into freely give us all things and so forth? And so it's speaking of us as a church. You say, Brother Myers, eh, I don't know. That's your, that's your argument. Let me show you what the Bible says here about man's, a man can be saved. Will you hang on with me? I'm going to wrap this up here in about three minutes. I want you to look with me in 1 Timothy 2 and 4, 2 and 3. Look in 1 Timothy 2 and 3. I'm just saying this so that you'll understand here that uh, this, is, this is true. Let me find it, huh? All right. First Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. You've got, you've got a pen, put a ring around the word all. It is God's will for all men to be saved, men and women. That men means mankind. And to come unto the knowledge of the truth. It is God's will that this be for all men. And then uh, in Second Peter, I'm reading here in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if it's God's will for all men and women to come to him to be saved, then it cannot be his will for some people to be born to be saved, some to be lost. So in order to understand the predestination factor, we have to understand, therefore, is the predestination as the church, not as individuals. I say this with that. Stay in the church. The church is predestined. Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Folks, stay in the church. Stay in the body of Christ. Remember this, that everything that survived the flood in Noah's day had to be in the ark. They, they couldn't make it. Somebody said, oh, I, you know, I got a little skiff boat in my garage. Flood comes, I got a skiff boat. You know, somebody else, I got a little sailboat, you know, and everything. I got my motor boat, you know, whatever. None of those things would survive. It couldn't. Because they, they, they had no idea 
how dramatic and how great and how terrible it would be. So they said, he said, Noah, build the ark. So you had to be in the ark. You got to be in the church. We can't do it our own way. And we, Jesus and I have got our own thing going, you know. We've got to be in the church, in the body of Christ, walking with God, serving the Lord, living for him. And then the Lord is an individual savior for every one of us is an individual. We, have, we know him personally. But it, this church is ordained of God from the foundation of the world, and it will never go down. Hallelujah. When empires come and go, the church will always stand. Can you say praise the Lord? Let me give you one other set of scriptures. I'm going to close now. This is in Revelations. I add this to the other two that I just mentioned here. This is whenever he's talking to the seven churches of, of Asia, and Jesus is telling them what's, what their faults are. This is 2.5, Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Fallen? I mean, they're predestined. To, they can fall. Oh, yes, they can. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. That means that if you don't get right with God and you've gone and you're going back in sin, you're going to lose out. Okay? That doesn't mean, and when you read that, you know, once saved, always saved just doesn't fit there. Everybody stay with me? Look at verse 15 in chapter 2 of Revelations. This is another one of the churches. So that thou also them, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Verse 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Over in chapter 3, verse 5, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. I will not blot his name out. Meaning that he could and he would if we don't live for God. In other words, once it's there, you say, my name's written down on the foundation of the world. It's going to be there. Nothing can take that away. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord said, you know, he can blot it out. But he says, if you repent, overcome, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess my name for his father and for the angels. Praise God. And it goes on speaking of a couple of these churches one more in in 319 and as men as i love i rebuke and chasten this is revelation still revelations 319 as men as i love i rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent behold i stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice open the door i will come into him and i will sup with him and he with me now he's talking to the church here he's talking to the laodicean church to him that overcometh will i grant to sit with me in my throne, even as also I am to sit down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear. He that hath, and the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. Everybody say praise the Lord. Aren't you glad for truth and holiness? Let's stand together, lift our hands, and let's just worship the Lord and let's thank him. Lord, say, Lord, I thank you for your wonderful salvation, your gospel, your love for us. God, you love us. You're so merciful, you're so kind, you're so long-suffering. Jesus, we owe you everything. God, you owe us nothing. But God, you're everything in our lives. We glorify you and praise you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.